Welcome to Question Period. I'm Joyce Napier. Today on the program, recession risk. I am confident that we have struck the right approach in general and in this fall economic statement. The federal government's fall economic statement shows Canada could enter a mild recession in the new year. How is the government preparing for an economic slowdown? And why were tax cuts not an option to help Canadians deal with inflation? We'll go one-on-one -on -one with Deputy Prime Minister and Finance Minister Christian Freeland. And we'll get reaction from the opposition. Then, Charter Challenge. Using the notwithstanding clause to suspend workers' rights um, is wrong. Ontario's latest use of the notwithstanding clause to override constitutionally protected labour rights is sparking debate and some anger. How is the clause being used more frequently as a political tool? Should the federal government intervene? Former NDP leader and CTV News political analyst Tom Mulcair joins us on The Scrum. Plus, controlling Congress. Democracy is on the ballot this year. The U.S. midterm election is coming up on Tuesday with hundreds of 2020 election deniers on the ballot. Is democracy under threat? Will Donald Trump actually announce a third White House campaign? U.S. Ambassador to Canada David Cohen is here. This is Question Period. Let's go get some answers. Rising recession risk. For the first time, the federal government is warning the country could enter into a mild recession in the new year. The acknowledgement came in Thursday's fall economic statement, which featured little in terms of new spending, just as the finance minister had been signaling for weeks. The projected federal deficit for 2022-2023 is $36.4 billion, down from the $52.8 billion forecasted in April's budget. In a worst-case scenario under a possible recession, the deficit could climb to $49 billion. So how is the government preparing for a possible recession? And why wasn't a windfall tax on oil and gas companies included in its economic statement? Joining me now is the Deputy Prime Minister and Finance Minister, Christian Freeland. Christian Freeland, welcome to Question Period. It's good to have you on the show. Great to be with you, Joyce. So the, the, your, your fall economic uh, statement warns of a mild recession, possibly in the coming year. Will you yourself say that a recession is a possibility here in Canada? Um, so you framed that very exactly and correctly, Joyce. Uh, in the fall economic statement, our baseline scenario, which is based on averaging the predictions of private sector economists, that baseline scenario actually forecasts a soft landing for the Canadian economy. And that's very much in line with the Bank of Canada's forecasts. But we are very aware that since we did that survey at the end of September, uh, some people have turned more pessimistic. People are seeing central banks around the world raising rates really high. We're seeing inflation very persistent in Europe. And so because of that, there are some downside risks. And that's why we thought the prudent thing to do was to also present a downside scenario. And in that downside scenario, basically it's like stress testing the government of Canada's finances. And we show that in the event uh, that, you know, if there were to be a mild recession, 
Canada's finances would remain robust and we would get through it. So, you know, we always try to read between the line of the governor of the Bank of Canada. It's a bit like the Oracle. Um, he he <laughs> the, seems to the think... The sage of Delphi, right? The Delphic Oracle. That's yeah. right. He seemed to, to, to suggest that there was a 50-50 chance. Would you agree with that? Um, you know, perhaps unlike the governor of the Bank of Canada, uh, I was not issued with a crystal ball when I became Minister of Finance. And, you know, I think when we talk about the global economy being very uncertain right now, what that means is, is exactly that word, that people really just don't know. We have never been in an economic environment quite like this one with such a sharp, synchronized tightening of monetary policy around the world, which basically means with interest rates going up so fast in all the major economies. So people just don't know for sure what's going to happen. We know there is a lot of uncertainty out there. We know there is a lot of volatility. But we can tell you one thing for sure. And that is, no matter what the global economy throws at us, Canada and Canadians are going to be just fine. And we're going to be just fine for two reasons. The first is the fundamental strength of Canada and the Canadian economy right now. We, right now, at this moment, we have 513,000 more jobs, more people working than we did before COVID hit. That is a fantastically strong economic recovery, and it puts us in really great shape, come what may. The second reason that I really can be confident of one thing, which is that Canada is going to be okay, is that the federal government's financial position is strong. We have the lowest deficit in the G7. We have the lowest debt-to-GDP ratio. Moody's after I tabled my fall economic statement, Moody's gave us a thumbs up, a clean bill of health, and they reaffirmed Canada's AAA yeah. rating with a stable yeah. outlook. It doesn't get better than that, Joyce. No, I, and, and, so, and, I, and I heard you, and, and I heard you about that on Thursday. But I'm curious about one thing in your economic statement. Your government has put a win, windfall taxes on banks and insurance companies. That was in the last budget. Now the UK and Europe, you know, are, are putting windfall taxes on oil and gas companies. Uh, even the outgoing CEO of Shell has has said that it is perhaps time seeing the huge, huge profits they're making uh, in this particular context. Your partners, the NDP, are asking for that as well. Why not do that? Well, you know, Joyce, we absolutely do agree that everyone in Canada needs to pay their fair share. That's how we afford to have the strong, compassionate society and social safety net that is so much a part of Canada and being Canadian. We've chosen to approach it in this fall economic statement in a slightly different, but I think really smart way. And that is with this tax on share buybacks. Okay, so I'm going to talk. I'm, I don't mean to, to, to be rude and interrupt you. I understand You're with the 2%, with the 2% uh, buyback, share buyback. That would bring in probably, if you're if you're lucky and those companies don't find ways around it, possibly 500 million dollars a year at best, according to economists. 
a windfall tax on gas and oil companies, we're talking billions of dollars. Billions of dollars that the outgoing CEO of Shell said, give it back to those people who are struggling now, who are paying a lot more to heat their homes and to fill their cars. Why not do that? You did it to banks in your last budget. These are companies that have made record profits. Well, look, Joyce, the windfall tax on financial institutions was based on a very specific set of events, um, which was that during COVID, during the lockdowns, the federal government undertook extraordinary emergency spending. We basically put you know, a line, a net underneath the Canadian economy. It was the right thing to do. And it also really, really helped. But our wouldn't banks wouldn't and it be the right wouldn't it be the right thing to do, to go after? I mean, even CEOs of those companies are saying, yes, we have made profits. Even acknowledging that, is it something that you fear? Do you fear a blowback from these companies here? As I said, Joyce, I think the tax on share buybacks, and we've gone at two percent, whereas the U.S. was at one percent, is exactly the right measure to ensure fairness, but also crucially to create the right incentives for Canada's biggest companies, very much including our oil and gas companies. Because what I want to say to Canada's biggest companies is, I would like you guys to solve a perennial problem in the Canadian economy. And that is that Canadian businesses are not investing enough money back into the Canadian economy. They're not investing enough money in productivity, in R&D and in their workers. And by putting a tax on share buybacks, what the government is doing is creating the incentives for companies to do what we need them to do. So let me move on to, to, to another issue. The Conservatives have been calling on the government to cancel planned increases to the tar carbon tax while the NDP have called you to waive the GST on home heating, you know, and with winter looming and understanding the cost now of heating. Would it you know, a temporary targeted uh, sort of break or suspension be something you would be considering? So, you know, what I think is really important, and I know that you know this, Joyce, um, what's really important to bear in mind when it comes to the price on pollution is in all the provinces that have the federal backstop, including Ontario, where I happen to live, that is a revenue neutral measure. That doesn't bring in any money to federal government coffers. The money goes back 100% to Canadians, and eight out of 10 Canadians get more money back than they pay in. So this is actually not only a good policy when it comes to climate change and climate action, it's actually a really good policy for supporting the most vulnerable Canadians. Christian Phelan, thank you. Uh, thank you for being with us today. Thank you very much, Joyce. Always a pleasure to talk to you. Coming up, fiscal fallout. Both the Conservatives and the NDP are critical of the government's fall economic statement. Why do they think there are alternative solutions to help Canadians with inflation? Opposition finance critics are here next to react. Stay right here with Question Period. Conservatives will stand for the common people, their paychecks, their homes, their savings, and we will vote against this inflationary scheme. For Canadians who were told again and again that the Prime Minister was going to have their backs, 
in this fall economic statement, he's actually turned their backs. Specifically, the cost of energy going up, no relief for Canadians dealing with a future of a cold winter. Harsh criticism from the opposition who say the Liberal government's fall economic statement doesn't go far enough to help Canadians with inflation. The Conservatives say they will vote against the update and are criticizing the government for not matching new spending with budgetary cuts. Meantime, the NDP are pushing for the GST to be eliminated on home heating along with a windfall tax on large corporations to help ease the burden on Canadians. So what solutions does the opposition have to help Canadians with the cost of living? Joining me now are Conservative finance critic Jasraj Singh Hallen and NDP finance critic Daniel Blakey. Gentlemen, good morning. Good to have you here. I want to ask you, your, uh, your leader uh, said that he will not support the economic statement. And in his letter to Finance Minister uh, Christian Freeland, he said, if you're going to spend, you've got to cut. Is that what he didn't like? What exactly is it that your party disagrees with? Well, thanks for having me, Joyce. Uh, our, our leader was very clear when he sent that letter. Conservatives are very clear. We wanted to see no new spending and no, and no new taxes. And what we got was something that did both of those things. And that's why we could not support this at a time when more families are so in food So which new banks. tax are we talking about? Uh, well, the carbon tax. They're going to be tripling the carbon tax. They, it's committed inside of that fall economic statement that they're going to triple that carbon tax. And that's something that we've been calling for for many years. Uh, in a province like Alberta, you know, the government keeps saying more, more Albertans are going to get more in their pocket, but the PBO officer, the public budgeting officer, has said that that's false. And next year, we know by the end of the winter time, they're going to implement a second carbon tax that's going to add another $1,300 on workers. So you think that's fair? Well, I mean, I think I've found it odd that the Conservatives said, well, no new taxes at all. Because one of the things that's in the fall economic statement, something the NDP has argued for, something that we put in the agreement, the, the supply and confidence agreement with the Liberals, is a pandemic dividend on banks and insurance companies who made record profits during the pandemic. It's something the Conservative leaders talked a lot about. But the how banks tax was and imposed companies. in the last budget. Well, but it's being implemented as part of the legislation for the fall economic statement because that hadn't actually been passed into law. And so now we have the details of that tax. We have the legislative details as part of the process around the fall economic statement. So that's something that makes a lot of sense. The conservative leader has identified the excess of cash that banks and insurance companies have had as part of the problem fueling the increase in prices in the housing market. We believe that taking some of that money back and investing it back into Canadians through things like a doubling of the GST rebate is a way to help people who are in a tough spot right now in a way that doesn't contribute to inflation and actually reduces the stockpile of cash that banks and insurance companies Okay, so then let me on. ask you, your, your leader disagreed with this statement. Uh, he was very clear about it. So why support it? Well, because there are things that we've worked very hard to get that are in that agreement, like that are in the fall economic statement. So the, the pandemic dividend is one of them. Moving forward with a sustainable jobs training center is another uh, thing that we have wanted to see. And there are some things outside the agreement that we've long advocated for, like, for instance, eliminating interest 
on student loans. So there are some positive things in there. It's just that we feel like there's a lot more that needed to be addressed and the government shouldn't have to wait for the NDP to force it to do the right thing every time. Okay, so, you know, Mr. Halland, let me ask you. So the Conservatives have called for a freeze on increases to premiums of EI and CPP. So how do you propose that these two programs be financed? Um, our leader has been very, very clear on this, that this is not the time to take more away from Canadians. They're not only going to be increasing the payroll taxes on January the 1st, they're going to be increasing the carbon tax on April the 1st. This is something we've been calling out for, for a long time. We know today, more than ever, the cost of just heating your home, filling up your gas or getting groceries uh, is more expensive than ever. Today, Canadians are getting hit with the highest taxes than they've ever been so hit So how before. long would the freeze last, for instance, your suggested freeze on all these? Um, programs. Look, we are we are not just saying freeze whatever you're doing today. We also need to look at the other side about how are we making investment grow in this country. Investment has been fleeing from this country. We need to have good jobs. We need to have good investment into this country. The Liberals along with the NDP have done a great job of driving investment away from Canada, especially from our energy sector. Our energy sector today, if they had built those pipelines, if they had supported our energy sector, we would have been able to have lower so costs on home heating. Let me ask you, you also say that there should be some cuts. So, you know, departments have to make cuts. Where would you see the cuts? What programs should be cut while your, uh, your leader in the House, in fact, talked about that? One and a half million Canadians going to food bank. One in five Canadian, you know, basically having a hard time putting food on the table. So, what programs would you cut? Cut the carbon tax. That's going to be immediate saving into families. We're going to get. But there are rebates, right? Cut, uh, not not necessarily. And if you look at the the PBO's uh, own report, more families don't get more that they put into. And how much sense does that make that you pay to maybe get a little bit back? That that doesn't make any sense at a time when we know more and more families are getting pushed into food banks. Canadians have the most credit card debt right now more than ever, and it's because of just inflation. We have too much money chasing too few goods. That gap is what we call just inflation, and that's causing everything to go up. We'd, we'd get no, rid of... No, I know of, you're calling it we'll just get, inflation. We'll but look, I don't want to defend him, right? But there well, are like rules of economics here we, we where, you know, cuts. how about how... So the inflation in all the other countries that is happening now, because it is not only... Is that just inflation too? Uh, well, if you don't want to take our word for it, future potential liberal leader, Mark Carney, who was a former Bank of Canada governor, also had said this. <laughs> he said that that it's a domestic story, which means it's created in Canada. But I want to ask you, because you are, 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 are pushing for more taxes and more spending. So how can that be in this particular context where, you know, more spending is not on? Well, look, we're not looking for more taxes on regular working Canadians. For instance, grocery chains like Loblaws that are now making a million dollars a day more in profit than they did compared to their latest banner year. These are folks that can afford to pay more in order to be able to pay for the kinds of assistance that working Canadians need right now because they're facing highly inflated prices and their wages aren't keeping up to make up that difference. So that means that there has to be some kind of support or people are going to end up as they are at food banks, skipping meals, losing their homes. So we need to push back against that. We recognize that threat at the beginning of COVID when there was massive unemployment. That's what the CERB was about. Originally, the Liberals were only going to offer $1,000 a month. We pushed for 2000 because we wanted to keep people in their homes. 
We're still in tough economic times. It will still be bad for the economy if everyone loses their home. There is still a need to provide certain kinds of support. Well, that's all the time we have, but I see that, you know, this is a kind of topic you guys will be talking about that and debating that in the House, not next week, because you're off the following week. So thank you both, um, Jas Raj Singh Halan and NDP finance critic Neil Blakey. Thank you for being here. Thank you very thank much. Thank you. When we come back, midterm madness. What could the United States' critical midterm election on Tuesday mean for Canada-U.S. relations? Is there a risk that election deniers, some of whom are running as candidates, could devalue our democratic institutions? U.S. Ambassador to Canada David Cohen joins us next. Stay right here with Question Period. Controlling Congress. In just two days from now, the United States will hold a critical midterm election that could set the tone for the rest of Joe Biden's presidency. All 435 seats in the U.S. House of Representatives are up for re-election, along with 35 seats in the Senate. President Biden and the Democrats currently control Congress, but with a slim majority. Meantime, Republicans have been gaining momentum despite having hundreds of nominees who continue to deny the legitimacy of the 2020 U.S. election. U.S. President Biden says democracy is on the ballot box. We know democracy at risk is at risk. But we also know this. It's within our power, each and every one of us, to preserve our democracy. And I believe we will. So how critical is the midterm to democratic institutions? Joining me now is U.S. Ambassador to Canada, David Cohen. David Cohen, welcome uh, to Question Period. Good to have you on the set. Um, I want to ask you about Joe Biden, who repeatedly said democracy is on the ballot this midterm, basically, you know, saying it's under threat. Are you afraid? So I'm, I'm an eternal optimist. I'm not afraid. I mean, I believe in the enduring nature of our democracy and, frankly, of the democracy in Canada as well. Um, it doesn't mean that democracy isn't under threat. It doesn't mean that there aren't challenging times. It doesn't mean that everything is smooth and hunky-dory. I do think democracy is under threat, but I do think in the end, democracy will prevail. It always has prevailed, um, and I think it will prevail again. But do you think it will prevail this time, or those voices uh, that you hear more and more in the States uh, will take over? So, I, so this becomes a a bit of a complicated question because what does takeover mean? Um, I think no matter what happens in this midterm election, and remember we don't, we don't have a parliamentary style of government, no matter what happens in this midterm election, Joe Biden will be president of the United States until at least 2024. But the one thing I can tell you is that there is a historical trend that the party of the president loses a lot of seats in Congress in this first midterm election. Um, there have been 22 midterm elections since 1934, and the party of the president has lost seats in 19 of those 22 elections. But the other thing I can tell you is that there's no linkage between what happens in a midterm election and what happens in the presidential reelect. So think about President Obama. Um, think about um, President Clinton, 
Both of them lost 60 or 70 seats in Congress in that first midterm election, and both of them comfortably won re-election two years later. So that's the pattern, and that is one of the reasons why I'm not concerned, and I don't think Canadians should be concerned, about the outcome of a particular, of one particular election in the United States. Oh, yeah, that, that's somewhat comf comforting what you, what you just said, but aren't you concerned that some of those candidates out there that are running for the GOP, for the Republicans, are 2020 election deniers? Um, is that one of the threats your president is talking about? Well, it, it's not that they're election deniers that is the threat. It is the, it is the potential for what they might try to do um, as a result of, of their beliefs around um, what happened in the, in, the, in, the, in the last election. And I think what the president is concerned about is that um, those individuals might try and change the election rules, might end up restricting access to the ballot and to, and to free elections. But they're already doing that, Ambassador. Well, you see in some of they're these doing it in states, some states. Is, is, isn't it something that concerns you more than, you know, I'm an optimist as well. Right. <laughs> um, that's concerning, isn't it? Right. So I'm concerned about any activities that potentially restrict the right of people to vote. I think that is a hallmark of our democracy. Um, and it's one of the reasons why the president decried the violence against um, Speaker Pelosi's husband um, because violence has just no place in a democratic system. And our elected officials, our, the families of our elected officials should not be subjected to the threat of violence simply because of their relationship to an elected official. Um, but so far, I don't think there's any real evidence that people are not voting because of what happened to Speaker Pelosi's husband. I think that although we, there are elements in our political system that have an interest in restricting, the, in, in, in my opinion, in restricting the right to vote, there's no evidence yet that that's happening. And I think that it's, you know, in, in our system of government, the freedom of the ability to vote absentee, to vote by mail, is one of the great protective mechanisms because if you're afraid to go to a polling place or you're nervous about a polling place, virtually everywhere in the country now you can vote by mail or you can vote absentee. Um, they're voting. They're exercising their right to vote. And that is the fundamental hallmark of a democracy. So I, I want to talk about Donald Trump because um, he was in Iowa last week, and this is what he said to a cheering crowd. In order to make our country successful and safe and glorious, I will um, very, very, that's three times very, probably do it again, very, very probably, get ready, that's all I'm telling you. So you expecting him to run again? So you're, you're trying to make me be a political commentator. Yeah, yeah I am. Which is your job. <laughs> which, which, is your, which is your job. But, it, but I'm going to resist that, and, I, and particularly with that question, because I don't know what Donald Trump is going to do, and I'll, but I'll be honest with you. I don't think a lot about what Donald Trump is going to do. 
Um, I don't think it would be good for the Republican Party for Donald Trump to run again. I don't think it would be good for the country. I think he's a very divisive force in, in politics. But I'm actually, I'm not panicked by the notion that he might run again. I, um, I don't think he'll win. Um, I, I, think the, I think enough of the country is tired of Donald Trump um, that, I, that, I, that I don't think he'll end up getting a majority of the vote. Um, I, think, I, I, I think Joe Biden is likely to run again. He has said he's going to run again. Um, and I like Joe Biden's chances against Donald Trump in round two. Interesting. David Cohen, thank you so much for being here and taking the time to talk to us. Well, thank you for having me on the air. And no matter what the results of the election are, America's democracy will be alive and vibrant. And the strong bilateral relationship between the United States and Canada will continue to exist and benefit millions of Canadians and Americans on both sides of the border. Spoken like a true diplomat. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. After the break, preventing protests. After Ontario Premier Doug Ford used the notwithstanding clause to prevent a strike and pass back to work legislation for education workers, the union, Ontario opposition parties, along with several federal elected officials, are calling the move heavy-handed. Should the federal government do more to stop the increasing use of the legislation? Former NDP leader Tom Mulcair joins the scrum next. Stay right here with Question Period. Using the notwithstanding clause to suspend workers' rights um, is wrong. I know that, that collective bargaining negotiations are sometimes difficult, but it has to happen. It has to be done in a respectful, thoughtful way at the bargaining table. Crumbling negotiations and charter challenges. Ontario's use of the notwithstanding clause to prevent tens of thousands of education workers from striking while also imposing a new four-year contract on them, is reigniting the debate on the notwithstanding clause and its purpose. Also known as Section 33 of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, the clause gives provincial legislatures or parliament the ability to override portions of the charter for a five-year term. In the case of Ontario, it's being used to prevent education workers from walking off the job. But what was once a rare move is now becoming more common, maybe too common. Ontario Premier Doug Ford invoked the notwithstanding clause for the first time in the province's history in 2021 to restore parts of the Election Finances Act that had previously been declared unconstitutional. François Legault's government in Quebec also used the clause twice in his first term, first for Bill 21, which bans public sector workers, including teachers, from wearing religious symbols at work, and later for Bill 96, a controversial language law that declares French the only official and common language in Quebec. It also limits the use of English in the public service. So, is Ford right to use the notwithstanding clause to keep education workers on the job, and should the federal government intervene to prevent the increasing use of the legislation? The Scrum is here to answer that. Stephanie Levitz is a Parliament Hill reporter for the Toronto Star. Bob Fife is the Ottawa Bureau Chief at the Globe and Mail. And our special guest this round, former NDP leader and CTV News political analyst Tom Mulcair. 
Good morning to all of you. Thanks for being there. Good Hi, to guys. see you. Um, Tom, I want to start with you. It seems that every time the notwithstanding clause is invoked, it diminishes the charter. What is going on? That's exactly what just happened in Ontario this week. Premier Doug Ford stole a page from the playbook of Premier Legault of Quebec. Legault, of course, used the notwithstanding clause globally and preemptively. So before the legislation was even challenged, he said, the Charter of Rights doesn't apply to what I'm doing here. Ford is doing the same thing because, you see, labor rights are also charter rights. An, ex an extension of freedom of association is the right to unionize, to negotiate, to bargain collectively, and so forth. Ford is saying, I'm having none of that. I'm removing those rights. Trudeau has gotten into a state of high dudgeon over this. Understandably, he's right to complain about what Ford is doing, but that's just put a circle around the stain of the fact that neither Trudeau nor his particularly weak uh, Minister of Justice is Attorney General David Lametti. Neither of them has lifted a little finger because they're afraid of Francois Legault and clearly not afraid of Doug Ford. So, Stephanie, what is the political gain for Doug Ford? Is it that he wants to avoid all this conversation about him appearing at the commission? Or does he see actually a political gain? Well, for one, does he even have to worry about a political gain? I mean, he was just re-elected with a massive majority government and won't face the voters for years now, right? Um, I think it's really hugely, tremendously unfortunate that once again it's children that are caught in the mix of a government that can't get its act together and find a way to sit down and bargain with the people, you know, who are responsible for keeping schools safe. That's really unfortunate. And, but on the other side, I think there are a lot of parents, and I guess perhaps I'm conflicted, I'm a parent, who watched what happened in the school system over the course of the pandemic, watched their kids' education get ping-ponged around, and are saying, I don't have the tolerance for this. I don't have the bandwidth for school strikes. You can't do this to our kids again. So if there's a political gain to be had, it's in that subset of the population who is saying, I'm fed up, I've had enough, I, I'm not tolerating any strikes, deal with this, find a way to solve it. So Bob, what, I'm, I'm interested in the reaction of the federal government. So, so the Justice Minister, David Lametti, criticized it, used quite harsh words, so did the Prime Minister, but it, so far it's just words. Well, that's what we hear from them all the time, whether it was the secularism bill in Quebec, mm some criticism but no action maybe if they come to the supreme court will intervene uh, you know look doug ford has made a political calculation that parents like stephanie are not going to be upset about the notwithstanding clause which they don't understand in any case and they want their kids back at school i think that's the reason why he's done this they think they're going to politically they're, it's they're not going to have much blowback they're going to get a blowback from the union, the teachers in the unions, and from the federal government. But what the federal government could do is go to the Supreme Court and argue the case that preemptive use of the notwithstanding clause should be limited or curtailed. I don't know whether that would work in the Supreme Court, but you've got to be able to do something other than make these. Oh, I, I've, I've called Doug Ford up and I told him he shouldn't be doing this. Do something. Whether it's, it's the secularism bill or whether it's the uh, use of, uh, of ending collective bargaining rights in Ontario. Well, just to pick up on Bob's point, it's also a lot of hypocrisy on the part of the Liberal government, right? Because they don't intervene in the case of Quebec when fundamental rights of religious freedom are being violated. Labor rights in the Charter were read in. They're read in on the basis of Supreme Court decisions after the fact. They're not sort of baked in in the same way religious freedoms are. And not to mention the fact that the Liberals themselves have used back-to-work legislation to force striking workers back on the job. So when are, you know, when are workers' rights? it's okay when are they not okay so does Trudeau have that moral authority I mean he did invoke the emergencies act here again 
you know, withdrawing people's rights. Uh, okay, it was, it was targeted, we understand, and it lasted just a few days. So does he have the moral authority, or is this is where we're going? Like well, you invoke look, look, the Emergencies Act because personally, you know, I don't think he should. He, I should. He should have invoked the Emergency Act. Emergencies Act. I don't think. I think the police had the powers to do it. I felt this right from the beginning. Uh, yeah, but, but they were not doing it. Yeah, but does but, he have the moral authority as the as the prime minister? Yes, now? he has because we're we're dealing here with fundamental rights, and Tom is absolutely right of what happened because I was there in '82 when they were doing those <laughs> constitutional negotiations, and the, those premiers were arguing eloquently that if there is a final, uh, once the courts have made a decision, and if it conflicts seriously with the legislatures, they have a right then to bring in the the notwithstanding clause. It is not meant to be done preemptively. And that's what's happening consistently now. And Trudeau should do something about it by going to the Supreme Court and arguing before that, that preemptively, and I think he has a case for that, preemptively, there needs to be limits on that notwithstanding clause. I mean, and, and in fact, if he, if he was to do, go to the court on the Ontario issue, he would then be, be pressured to say, well, then you've got to do Quebec on the secularism bill, and he won't do that. So Quebec. he'll talk stuff, yeah, but he won't looking. do anything. Yeah. You look in vain to find the same phone call to Francois Legault over the secularism <laughs> bill, which is called Bill 21, or the attack on equality of English and French before the courts, which we call Bill 96. It never happened. And he won't go on the public record the same way he's just doing it in Ontario. He knows that there are 50 seats in the GTA where his position is going to be popular with a decent part of the population, despite the fact that, of course, Steph is right. There are a lot of parents who are upset about the whole situation. But removing charter rights is something that's going to resonate when Trudeau stands up and gets on that high horse and says, I'm here to fight for the charter. But you've got to do that across the country. The charter rights can't be different from one province to the other. You've got to take a consistent approach and not just have rhetoric as your only tool. Yeah, sadly, it seems there's nobody left there to defend uh, the charter. Um, Tom, thanks for joining us. Stephanie and Bob will Pleasure. stay with us. Still to come, trucker testimonies. The inquiry into the government's invocation of the Emergencies Act heard from key protesters for the first time this week. What did the Commission learn about the so-called Freedom Convoy's level of organization? And did testimonies reveal any national security risks? Former CSIS Director and National Security Advisor Dick Fadden joins the Scrum. Stay right here with Question Period. It was a very, very fast-moving, chaotic environment with so many either interpersonal issues arising between the players or logistical issues or whatever. When people talk about the convoy organizers, there were many different groups, right? It wasn't just one group, and every different group had their own idea. Protester power plays. The inquiry into the government's use of the Emergencies Act continued this week, and for the first time, the Commission heard from key convoy organizers. The week of testimonies shed light on the dynamics between protesters and their motivations for occupying Ottawa. Many described power struggles amongst organizers and various factions of the protest. During their testimonies, several key players tried to distance themselves from Pat King, who notably live-streamed his own arrest from his truck. King, for his part, tried to downplay comments he made in a viral video saying the protest would, quote, end with bullets. Another key player, Tamara Leach, teared up recounting her conversations with Canadians about the pandemic mandates. She testified that all she wanted was a peaceful protest to be heard and to end the mandates. So, 
What did we learn from convoy organizer testimony? And did any of it show there was enough of a national security threat to justify invoking the Emergencies Act? The Scrum is here to answer that. Stephanie Levitz is a Parliament Hill reporter for the Toronto Star. Bob Fife is the Ottawa Bureau Chief at the Globe and Mail. And our special guest this round is former CSIS Director and National Security Advisor to two Prime Ministers, Dick Fadden. Hello, hello again. From what you have heard so far at the Commission, was there enough of a national security threat in your opinion? I think so. I'm not sure it was evident early on, but clearly uh, there were people who went well beyond the anti-vaxxing objectives. They wanted to overthrow the government. Uh, a couple of them wanted to threaten the Prime Minister's life and safety. And if you get to that point, I don't know what national security is if it isn't national security. And I think the particular danger there is in, the, in a group that's in a blockade, you get groupthink going very, very quickly. And the most negative can very quickly infect those who were there just to sort of make their point about vaccines. So I really do think there was a national security component. And we find out that a member of the prime minister detail, of his detail, his security detail, was leaking information on the prime minister's schedule to uh, some organizers. What does that say to you? Well, I think it says that we're not paying enough attention, we governments and we citizens, to people who have different views. I think what he did, if that's in fact the case, is wrong, period. When you join a police force or the military or something like that, you make a clear commitment, you follow orders, and if you don't agree, you, re you retire and you leave, and you don't take advantage of the information you have. But I think it means that people who felt very, very strongly that the government's policy on vaccination was wrong had nobody to talk to. I think, I really think the people who were blockading were wrong. I think they violated the law and they created a serious problem. But if we back up a little bit, I don't think governments, plural, not just the federal government, really engaged in any sort of a dialogue. So I'm not saying governments caused this, but I think they could have mitigated it if there had been more of an open dialogue, not just here, but in Queens Park and in Alberta. And there really was no interest in doing that. So, Bob, do you think that, from, you know, based on, on testimony that we've heard so far, we know this uh, commission isn't over, was there, do you hear that there was a threat to national security, which is one of the reasons to invoke the Emergencies Act? Well, look, there, there may be a national security threat, but not to, to reach the level of invoking, in my opinion, the Emergencies Act. We saw the police handle without the invocation of the Emergency Act the, the uh, serious uh, blockade at the Windsor-Detroit uh, Bridge, which would have put all of the Canadian and U.S. commerce at a, at a halt. But they were able to do that without invoking the Emergency Act, and I think they could have done the same thing here. Uh, but, I, but another point I, I want to raise that what Dick had to say about uh, the, the truckers. There were a lot of, there were the Pat Kings of the world and there were the party animals over here we all saw. But those truckers owned their rigs, they paid their taxes, they were generally law abiding, very individualistic for sure. Something triggered these people and we all talked to them. They had crazy conspiracy theories about vac vaccination. But these are not people who normally go and break the law. So something, we have to do some, we have to do better as a society, whether it's politicians or all of us, to understand and to make sure that we don't have people like do, doing that kind of thing again. Because it, it is, it is um, 
it's a, it's, it is a threat to democracy if they do not believe that our political institutions can, can deal with the, the issues that they have. We heard from the organizers. What did you hear from them? You know, what was their intentions? Uh, and they were certainly very well financed. I mean, there was definitely the money component. One of the things um, that has, you know, was interesting at the time and now is getting new light shed upon it is that there weren't actually one, there wasn't one organizer. Mm -hmm. There wasn't one person responsible mm -hmm. to this. And I think that goes to a point that Dick was making about um, the crowd was sort of existing on a spectrum. And at any given moment, based on the intelligence we've heard so far presented at the commission, um, it was possible that one faction of that was, was going to erupt and it was going to get violent. And there were police concerns about that. There wasn't one person that could get up on a bullhorn and say, okay, everybody, time's up, go home now, please. That wasn't going to happen. So this was persisting. People were digging in their heels. And there was tension among the organizers themselves. And this is testimony that's just now been playing out over the last couple of days. It'd be very interesting to see how that tension was resolved. Because imagine the organizers were in some kind of fight. One weaponizes one faction, one weaponizes mm -hmm. another faction. And what do you expect we know that CSIS is going to be testifying, that RCMP will be testifying. What are you expecting to hear from them? For the love of me, I don't understand why the intelligence seems to have been so uh, scattered. disaggregated, scattered. Mm. I mean, the convoy started at the other end of this vast country. Every major police force between there and here should have been contributing, contributing to a consolidated intelligence assessment, whereas that was clearly not the case. The Ottawa police had one view. The OPP had another view, and I suspect the RCMP did. So if the experience so far before the commission is any example, there will be finger pointing on the part of the RCMP and on the part of CSIS. I say this with some regret because I used to work with these people. But I don't think, generally speaking, uh, we were organized as well as we could be. Quickly, Stephanie, what are you watching for? I'm watching for more information, right? I think we just continue to watch. One of the things that's fascinating about this commission is it's one of the very first times we have seen so much light shed on a government decision. When else do you get to have the curtain thrown right back on, like this and see all the various pieces that w went into a government decision? I think it's very healthy for democracy. I think it's great to see you know, surveys suggesting people are paying attention. And ultimately, there'll be, I hope, some measure of accountability across all levels of government for how this, how this all unfolded. Um, back to Dick's point right at the beginning, all the way to the use of the act and what came next. And I'm sure we'll have a lot of chances to talk about it again. Richard Fadden, Stephanie Levitz, Bob Fife, thank you so much for joining thank us. You. Thank you. Thank you. And that's question period for this week. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy your Sunday. We'll be back here in seven short days.